Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tom Keen took a day off. Can you believe that? Lisa Abramowitz did not. She's sitting in for Tom, and she'll be with us all morning here on Bloomberg Surveillance. You know, Lisa, if you drive straight north from London, you come to Cambridge, take a left, you go a couple of miles up the road, and you get to Mattingly, population 210. What does it look like? The Lord, well, we're going to find out because the Lord of the matter, Baron Brown of Mattingly, Lord John Brown, is with us, the former CEO of BP, uh, one of the people we have been talking to at length over the whole Brexit process. Um, And I want to get to that. But what is what is it like in Mattingly? It's a very small town. It's got a crossroads. It's got a church. It's got a pub. It's got a restaurant and a few houses. So this is uh, the uh, UK equivalent of a one-horse town. Does everybody know each other? Uh, absolutely. And there's a nice town hall as well. And there is actually a, a big manor, which doesn't belong to me, but it belongs to Cambridge University. And they do a lot of teaching there. Do they bring you, like, tribute every year? Uh, no, it's, 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 this has all changed now, you know. Uh, it's ever since we, uh, we separated from the United States that uh, everything changed in the U.K. as well. <laughs> well, speaking of separation, <laughs> you separated from us 250 years yeah, ago. Hold on a second. I was about to say, it's not like uh, you have a, an institutional knowledge of this <laughs> or a personal no, not, knowledge not, of it. Not at least in this life. Came along yeah. shortly thereafter, yes. Uh, you did separate, or you are going to separate at some point from uh, the European Union, it does appear. And you were telling uh, Guy Johnson and I on Bloomberg Surveillance on television, Brexit's Brexit. You didn't want it, but you have to accept it now. As a CEO, what would you do? You don't know for two years what the terms are going to be. Do you start making plans to move out of the UK, move your supply chains? Do you invest for the future? Do you start laying off workers? What do you do? I think it depends on which sector you're in. Where you have very strong regulatory issues, such as the financial sector and passporting to provide services and sales uh, to investors, then you've got to hedge your bets. I think you've got to sort of think about where would you keep your staff and and things like that. I, I think for other manufacturing, you'd have to go through and look very carefully at what you're doing. I personally would invest always through the cycle, invest in to some uncertainty. It's You can actually get some good bargains that way. You know, I I thought it was compelling yesterday on Bloomberg Radio and Surveillance. IHS's Daniel Jurgen said that the one thing that has brought down his estimates for growth is Brexit and that they think that possibly that could affect a couple hundred thousand barrels a day of oil and and bring it offline as a result. Do you you agree with that? It's possible, although it depends. uh, It's possible. Uh, and I wouldn't disagree with Dan that it certainly will reduce growth uh, in the world in one way or another. There is, I'm sure that's the case. Uh, whether it will change the big change of investment patterns that has occurred in the oil and gas business, I think it's unlikely. After all, we've taken trillions of dollars out of the investment uh, in the oil and gas business. This will be a very small change compared with the big change as a result of the halving of oil prices. But 
going back to slowing of demand and the fact that, you know, a lot of people have attributed the fall in oil prices to the slowing of demand and the slowing of growth. Do you think that, that, this, that the growth could slow enough as a result of Brexit to have a material effect on oil prices? I don't think it's that significant globally. After all, uh, growth in oil consumption is something which is in the hands of uh, nations outside uh, the United States and Canada and European nations. The growth is about China, the growth's about uh, Africa, the growth's about South America, and the growth's actually in the Middle East. So these are the big drivers of growth. Uh, small changes, I think, in the structure of the economy of Europe to do with oil and oil alone, I think, will be reasonably small. To bring it back to politics... The Scots were very upset by the Brexit vote. Uh, a year ago, they turned down the idea of separating, but they're ha talking about having another referendum. At $40, $45, can Scotland survive as an independent country? Would it be a good idea for them to, to try this again? I think it's very difficult for Scotland to be a petro-state based on... Uh, I mean, that was the whole barrel. theory behind the uh, last referendum. Well, I think there's more to it than just oil. I think that's to do with the sense of identity, uh, which the people of Scotland have been wrestling with for many years. So I think it's that, uh, and it's other, other factors in the economy. I think the oil business in the North Sea at these sorts of oil prices is not an attractive business. It's expensive, and there are plenty of liabilities which need to be cleaned up. In fact, the, the cleaning up of the oil and gas facilities at the end of production is very expensive. And those liabilities have got to be sorted out before anybody thinks about who owns what in the oil in the, in the North Sea. In referencing that, you're talking about, of course, deep water drilling. And I'm wondering, going forward, if uh, North Sea or anywhere, if you really want to commit the kind of money you need to commit to deep water drilling when you've got fracking available, would companies just want to absorb as much of the fracking property as possible and do the easy stuff for a while? Well, uh, fracking is obviously very important and it's getting better over time as it gets lower and lower costs. So we do know that and therefore higher productivity. But the world will not survive on fracking alone. Uh, most of the oil in the world comes from much more conventional sources. Uh, these are offshore reserves in deep water as well as onshore reserves in a whole variety of places not least the Middle East. So that all needs investment. There's no oil field in the world that doesn't need reinvestment because it's uh, trying to walk up a downward uh, racing uh, escalator. You know, everything declines the whole time. So you need a lot of investment uh, and uh, people will still have to figure out ways of drilling in deep water. Uh, and that will mean that there'll be some pressure on prices as we go forward. Has there been... a concomitant change in the technology for deep water as to what we've seen with fracking? Uh, not yet. I mean, there certainly has been a lot of change. But uh, the big change, of course, is nobody wants the drilling rigs. And so the cost is coming down. So we're here with John Brown, Baron of Mattingly, and we are graced with his presence on this day as people wonder about where oil is heading. And, you know, uh, John, you were the head of BP, and you saw it through a lot of rocky times. Right now, there is a big debate going on about is it supply, is it demand? From If you were still CEO of BP, 
Would you be looking more at the supplies of oil coming to the market, or would you be looking more at growth and the possible demand in the next couple of months? So obviously you must look at both because the, the issue with oil is the supply and demand are represented by two very, very big numbers. So the difference is subject to very big error. And what we're looking at always is the difference. Are we going to draw inventory? Are we going to add inventory? And that's the big question. So I always look at stocks, inventory, see how they're going. And I always am very sceptical about forecasts on demand because they are consistently wrong and they're affected by short-term information, which, when corrected, does, never turns out to be the case. And we tend to be rather optimistic about demand. Supply, uh, I mean, there's a tremendous number of people analysing this and they get it kind of right. But it's very political. It's de determined by the actions of states and, of course, the actions of uh, uh, different crises. So if you look at today, there's plenty of oil which could be uh, produced but is not being produced because of issues, whether it was Canada in the past, Nigeria, uh, Iraq, it goes on. So as a CEO of an oil company, how do you position? So you want to make sure you clear your cost of capital at uh, low oil prices when you commit to investments. And you do want to make sure that you can see the point of payback uh, in a reasonable, reasonable horizon. And in the oil business, that's many years, but not so many years as to go into a future which is terribly uncertain. So you look, you always take a slightly cautious view, but uh, you've, got to be, you've got to be very accurate on the, the quality of the asset. You know, commodity businesses are all driven by cost, uh, and you, if you're the lowest cost producer, you'll be the last person to turn out the lights, you'll be fine. So you've just got to make sure you keep your costs down, and that's not just a matter of cutting costs, it's a matter of the inherent costs of the activity. And that's why shale is proving to be so good, because it's getting lower cost and lower cost. Well, how long is the lead time on a project? I mean, how much guesswork do you have to do about what conditions are going to be X years down the road? It depends. I mean, if you are dealing with deep offshore uh, uh, oil, oil developments or LNG developments, uh, you're looking at, uh, you know, you have to look 25 years. Uh, so you may not start production for seven to 10 years uh, before you start a project. So you've got to you've got to have different techniques to see how exposed to risks you are. Pricing is very important. Costs are very important. You never know whether the cost of a, a service goes up or down. You've got to make forecasts. And, of course, uh, geopolitical stability. You know, are the terms and conditions you're given the ones that you will end up with when you start production? That's usually the case here in the United States or in Europe, but not always. When the price of oil goes up, Governments tend to look to take a bigger chunk of the revenue. We've also seen a lot of geopolitical instability around the world in the last couple of years. Seems like more than usual, maybe on a micro basis, but country by country, you've got these uh, oil uh, facilities. How do you measure that? How do you, you know, how do you know what's <laughs> what's a good risk and what's a bad risk? Well, you can't, of course, so you've got to think about the different possibilities of how things come together. And people, I mean, generally, none of us are very good at, I think, understanding what might happen to nations. But, you know, when prices are down, it's usually not surprising that the political instability does go up in some nations because there's less money around. 
and so someone loses. I love, Mike, your implication that there's like a Brexometer or Trumpometer out there <laughs> that you can kind of check and gauge uh, whether or not you're going to run into some instability. I, you know, I was just looking at some default data this morning, and it showed that uh, defaults among U.S. junk bond company, uh, junk rated energy companies have soared beyond 10% and are expected to go up further. A year from now, do you think that this sort of lower rated, smaller uh, suite of energy companies in the U.S. will pose less of a competition? Oh, definitely. I mean, a lot of them will go out of business and then uh, post-bankruptcy, the assets will be sold. And some will, if they have any good assets, uh, what you do see in the market is a lot of recapitalization, so uh, equity for debt, uh, different type of uh, restructuring of the debt waterfall, uh, all of that's taking place. But a lot of the assets which are subject to these bankruptcies or the potential bankruptcies are very, very high cost, where I think investors are looking and saying, actually, the cost can't come down to make this work unless the price of oil is $100, and that's too remote a possibility. But do you think that as a result of this, other bigger companies are going to ramp up supply to sort of... I think that these small companies generally are not material, again, to the big supply picture. And uh, some of the medium-sized companies, which are excellent, uh, working in the, in the unconventional business in the U.S., can certainly turn up uh, uh, activity and get production out more easily than these companies could have done. So I don't think we'll notice the difference. And besides, good assets never go away. So if they've got good things, people will be there competing for these assets, as they are today. I mean, they're paying huge amounts of money for them. John Brown, Lord uh, Brown, uh, Baron Brown of Mattingly. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for coming in. Hopefully the uh, pound isn't costing you too much money to come over here. Matthew Harnbach is with us. He's got to find shortage. He's got to do it every day. He's got to find where bond yields are going to go in a world where uh, this is, well, who knows? I mean, you know, it used to be that investors bought bonds. Now central banks buy bonds. Nobody knows who or why or what, what's going to happen on a day-to-day basis, but we're going to ask Matt anyway. But, but Matt, Matt knows. Yeah, he's the global head of interest rate strategy at Morgan Stanley, and he has made the bold call of the year, which is by 2007, this time, 2017, we'll be living in a 1% 10-year, 1%, I say that again, 1% 10-year universe, uh, which implies to me like you could use the yield curve as a ruler at that point, right? Yes, the the yield curve would be quite flat at, at that point in time. I mean, we're calling this the year of the bull because we've got central banks that are easing policy globally. Uh, we expect that to continue with the ECB uh, at some point this year, with the Bank of Japan at some point this year, with the Bank of England at some point this year. And our chief U.S. economist, Ellen Zentner, is expecting the Fed to do nothing for the next 18 months. So there's a lot going on in central bank land, uh, and we expect that with central banks doing what they're doing, it will be very difficult, if not impossible, for interest rates to rise very much in this environment. And so with that, we are looking at economic growth globally, uh, which will disappoint consensus expectations. That type of disappointment is going to send yields lower, and that's kind of what we're forecasting at this point. Well, yields lower, you spend a lot of time in Japan looking at the bond market there, living there. 
Are we experiencing the Japanification of the U.S.? So, you know, the economies are, are certainly different. Uh, and I don't want to paint the picture of a U.S. economy that is like the Japanese economy. Uh, but in terms of the type of deleveraging that has happened in the U.S. economy, um, it, it definitely smells very similar to what we saw in Japan. The, the players are different. Uh, in Japan, you had a deleveraging of the corporate sector uh, and the banking sector. Uh, and in the United States, uh, the corporate sector hasn't really participated in that deleveraging. In fact, they've actually been leveraging up their balance sheets. So how long could U.S. Treasury yields 10-year yields stay at 1%? So, look, I think in, that is going to depend on what the Federal Reserve ends up doing and what happens outside of the U.S. economy. Um, one of the big themes really starting since August of last year was that China began to change their currency regime, uh, devaluing their currency. And that's something that we expect will continue. That changed the landscape for global interest rates at that point in time. And since August of last year, we've had really nothing but a bull market in global bond yields. Uh, the reason is because the devaluation and depreciation of the Chinese renminbi uh, has allowed the disinflationary environment in China to really be exported to other developed market uh, economies globally. That's what we're seeing in the U.S. We're talking about Matt's call for a 1% treasury by the first quarter of next year. Is that where you stop? Could we go lower? We could, we could certainly uh, go lower than that, but you're going to have to start making assumptions about Federal Reserve policy if you are expecting a yield to fall too much below 1%. Here we're talking uh, principally about the quantitative easing program that the Fed had ended uh, over a year ago coming back full force. Um, that's an assumption that we're really not willing to make at this point in time. Um, our economists are forecasting a U.S. growth picture that is going to disappoint people. We're looking at growth next year to the tune of about 1.4% in the United States. That's relative to a consensus expectation above two. So we're talking about a pretty big miss on U.S. growth next year. That, in my view, is going to get people talking about the next move by the Federal Reserve being an easing. But that's something that the markets won't fully price in until we get much closer. Can I ask a and then I'll let Lisa carry it. But I got to ask this uh, this question here. When I was just thinking about the implications of a one percent ten year, and one that could go lower, and the flat yield curve, what would you tell somebody to buy if you're talking about an interest rate spread of between twos and tens of thirty basis points or something like that? I mean, what would you buy, and even why? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things that you would look for is just higher yields. And the question that you'd have to answer is, how much risk would you be willing to take for that incremental yield pickup? You know, you're talking about extending from the 10-year Treasury security to the 30-year Treasury security. That's a very large jump up in duration risk that you'd be taking in your portfolio. But if you want that incremental yield, that's what you're going to have to do. And that's what investors globally are facing these days is this, this decision between how much incremental yield do I want in my portfolio versus how much risk am I willing to take to get that incremental yield? Well, you wonder whether it would happen to the 30, Lisa, because there aren't that many. Well, and, and, and if everybody's searching for yield, 
<laughs> well, you know, I want to I want to take the opposite side of this. I mean, I'm looking at flows data just for for U.S. ETFs that focus on government bonds, and year to date, there's been almost nine billion dollars of inflows, increasing the assets, the total assets in these funds, by more than 12%. You've seen incredible record-breaking flows going into, in particular, U.S. government bonds and investment-grade bonds. What is the risk that you're wrong and that something happens and yields rise and these bets are going to go very bad, very quickly. Well, there's there's always that risk. I mean, that risk has been present for 30 years, but that really hasn't stopped interest rates from trending lower. You need to look at what people are expecting and how things are going to come in versus those expectations. And for the past 30 years, we've had an inflation environment in the U.S., which has just not met people's expectations. Inflation has come in much lower. And that's what our economists are expecting will continue. When you look at the G10 economies across the developed world, we're forecasting core rates of inflation that are not going to meet central bank targets for a long time. What would you have to see? What would Morgan Stanley have to see to change that view? I think one of the things that would change our view is if we got the type of fiscal stimulus out of some of the major economies in the world that like people what? aren't expecting. Like what? Well, we're, we have to see something coming out of the euro area. Uh, that's not – we just don't think the politics in Europe or the politics in the U.S. Uh, are going to help us achieve that type of fiscal stimulus that really is needed. Now, in Japan, it's a different story. Uh, we're expecting 8 trillion yen worth of real spending uh, coming out of the Abe administration. That's something that people are talking about and have been talking about for many, many months now. But that's what we're expecting. We're not expecting that type of fiscal stimulus to come out of Europe, the U.S., or even the UK. Do you see helicopter money being on the table for Europe? We don't see helicopter money as it has been popularized in the media. Uh, the, the idea of helicopter money is one that we actually are already dealing with today in the fact that you have some governments that are running fiscal deficits and you have central banks that are, in a sense, monetizing those deficits in their, with their QE programs. That is what I would call de facto helicopter money. Do you think that central banks will forgive the debt for the government? It will cancel out? I don't think that is in the cards, no. Um, politically, it would be probably unpalatable for these central banks to even consider doing something like that. So that's not something that we would expect to happen at all. How would explicit helicopter money affect trading in the bond market? Uh, if, if basically the conduit is from the fiscal authority to the monetary authority, where do retail investors or institutional investors come in that and how would it work? I mean, in some ways, it would be similar to a traditional fiscal stimulus. There's going to be spending coming from the government, hitting the bank accounts of private sector players. Uh, they're going to spend that money. And the question is, what does the fiscal multiplier look like when you have this injection of cash into the economy? So ultimately, in, in the near term, you would see bond yields likely rise because the expectation for helicopter money is quite low at this point in time and the price of these markets. If you got helicopter money, I would expect to see bond yields rise. Uh, that, however, I would also expect to be temporary because keep in mind, you're going to have a lot more money chasing not as many government bonds. Think about it this way. When you have traditional fiscal stimulus, you have government spending and then you have an increase in bond supply. So eventually that money can find its way into bonds. But helicopter money simply is just an expansion of the money supply. 
but there's no there's no offsetting increase in government bond supply. So ultimately, and here we're talking years down the road, but if you do get helicopter money, it could actually end up being more bullish for government bonds over the long term because you don't have that increase in government bond supply. What if you're wrong in your call? What if uh, the economy surprises to the upside, the Fed raises rates, even as some of them have suggested in the last couple of weeks, twice this year? This isn't just a call. I mean, if so many people are in at such a low yield, um, th there could be a rush for the door. A absolutely. And that's why at Morgan Stanley, we have a framework when we're forecasting interest rates, equities, foreign exchange, where we put together bull and bear scenarios. You know, what if we're wrong? There's always a chance. Uh, and so in our bear case scenario for government bonds, which would include some of the assumptions that you talked about with central banks raising rates, the Fed in particular, uh, we would be looking at higher bond yields. Absolutely. In that case, I could see the 10-year treasury going above 2% fairly easily if the Fed were to continue to raise rates and the rest of the global economy were to improve. That's a key assumption there. But how do people get out in that situation without getting killed? Well, government bond, the government bond markets are the most liquid markets in the, in the world. So until I, they're not. I mean, we did see a flash not. crash in the bond market once. That's right. And, and, a flat, and, the, and, the, and this is what investors have to try to understand is that with the generally reduced uh, liquidity in times of stress, you know, you, you, do have to, you do have to take that into consideration. But I would say in general, if the Fed were to hike rates, I would operate under the assumption that we would not be in a time of stress. Really quickly, do you see us at the beginning of a massive asset bubble that we have not seen before as people rush into riskier assets as a result of these incredibly low yields? Well, asset bubbles are in the eye of the beholder. Um, I don't see a bubble in bonds. I haven't seen a bubble in government bonds in some time. Uh, here we're talking about supply and demand. Central banks are increasing their demand for bonds. Bond prices are responding accordingly. Uh, that to me is not necessarily a bubble. All right, Matthew Homer from Morgan Stanley, Global Head of Interest Rate Strategy. Thanks for joining us. Well, Donald Trump did speak last night. They dropped the balloons. The party is over in Cleveland, but the memories linger. Vin Weber is with Mercury Partners, former member of Congress, uh, frequent Bloomberg surveillance guest. And Vin, uh, I know you were there for what? Did you stay for the whole thing? I did not, Mike. I was there Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, but I'm not a delegate. And I've been through enough conventions to know that the best part of wisdom is getting out of town before the candidate accepts the nomination. Otherwise, you got to crush at the airport. So I left uh, yesterday afternoon, came home and watched a speech last night from my, in my living room. Uh, we'll get to the speech in a moment, but up to the point where you left, what was it like? Well, it was it was different uh, in, in this regard. You, you normally go to a convention. By the time you're at the convention, the, the divisions of the primary season are pretty much behind you, and almost everybody is excited to varying degrees about their nominee. You know, by the time we got to the convention in Tampa, everybody was pretty excited about Romney, even though there had been a bitter campaign in the primaries uh, against him. But everybody got behind. This was not the case in Cleveland. There were still an awful lot of people running around unhappy about Donald Trump or resigned at best to having supported him. I do think over the course of the convention, the natural dynamic of the party coming together did have some effect for him. But in my observation, it never became 
quite the celebration that you expect at a national convention. Did you actually hear people debating on the floor why they were or were not enthusiastic about him? Oh, yeah. You heard a lot of people talking about that. And the, the truth is, if you, if you become a delegate to the Republican National Convention, you, 95% of those people do not want to cause trouble for Donald Trump. So it's not like they were making... I mean, I think the Trump people, by the way, made some trouble for themselves in fighting that rule on Monday of the convention. They didn't need to fight that. They, could have, they would have won. They said they had 80% of the votes on their side. They could have let the vote take place and had a lot of people who felt some pressure had been let off. But most of these people wanted to get behind Trump. But you had an awful lot of people talking about how they were much more focused on reelecting their senators and their governor and their congressmen and they were just hopeful that Trump would end up not being a drag on the ticket in their home state. So it, it, was, it was a mixed bag uh, in a way that you don't really see at conventions very often. Maybe back in 1976, if you want to go back that far, the Reagan people were not excited about getting behind Gerald Ford. But it was not quite like this. I mean, you know, they, they, were, they were waiting for four years later when they were going to get Reagan elected president. My brain, when I am thinking about what we saw this week sort of went back to 68 and 72. I don't want to make too much of a 68 comparison because that was outside the hall and uh, it was you know a, a really kind of horrible time. But in 72, in Miami, the McGovern people ran the convention about as well as Donald Trump's people did, as I remember. Uh, and I remember that uh, George McGovern started speaking at uh, instead of Thursday night on Friday morning by the time uh, he was speaking. have Other than that, have you ever seen a convention run as badly as this one or one that generated as many negative headlines as this one? Well, let me first of all put a caveat on that. The management of the, the physical management of the convention was good. And I want to say that because Cleveland was a wonderful town. I, I And they've had some bad luck over the years, but I want to say Cleveland ran a great convention. The people were good. There were no safety problems. Everything ran efficiently. Now, in terms of the program of the convention itself, which was not the responsibility of the people in Cleveland, but the responsibility of the Trump campaign, you're right. They screwed it up badly. They, 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 they didn't vet their speeches properly. They didn't have the right speakers up there. Uh, they fought fights, as I mentioned a minute ago, on the rules that they didn't need to fight. Uh, they got into a public argument with Governor Kasich unnecessarily, the most popular Republican in the state of Ohio. Uh, and I, I, I think that they did a lot of things. They did not manage the message coming out of the campaign very well. But I want to say for our friends in Cleveland, they did a nice job. You know, I was struck by Ted Cruz's speech and how that was really a galvanizing moment for the entire room at the convention. And it sort of coalesced uh, the delegates and everybody there around Donald Trump in a, in a way. Yeah. Do you think that it read the same way to the people watching on TV? No, uh, I, I don't think so. I, I think the, the analysis afterwards permeated and people around the country saw, yeah, that was not a gracious thing that Ted Cruz did. Um, but I, thought, I think people watching TV saw something different. The sad thing for somebody that comes from my perspective is that the substance of Ted Cruz's speech forgetting for a second that he didn't endorse Trump, if, if you can forget that. The substance was a very important message. I mean, he talked about things that Republicans hadn't talked about for a while. He talked about Abraham Lincoln. He talked about the Emancipation Proclamation. He talked about the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and he actually talked about LGBT rights. I mean, that was a message coming 
up as it did from the most conservative candidate in our primaries, it was really quite remarkable and would have been a positive contribution to the communications coming out of that convention. But it was all swept away by the focus on the fact that he declined to endorse. And if he had just begun by saying, I'm pleased to be here and endorse our candidate, Donald Trump. Now, here are my thoughts. That's all he needed to do. One, know, one sentence would have gotten the focus on the substance of his speech instead of on the snub to Donald Trump. There's been a lot of ink spilled over the idea that Donald Trump manages to consistently land on his feet, regardless of how much bad press he and his campaign gets. Do you think that this convention is the same? I think that he- I think that he ended the, camp, the, the, the convention with a speech that sets him in the direction that he wants to go. Um, I'm not a Trump Republican, but I have to say I thought he did better than I thought he would last night. He avoided uh, sort of the off-the-cuff demonization of the other side. He presented a dark picture of America, much darker than I think is justified by reality, but he did portray himself as the person to fix that problem and to make us safe and to rebuild our infrastructure and things like that. And I think that, I think that you know, at the end of the day, the candidate's speech is 90% of what matters at these conventions. And he, I don't think he, this was not a speech a la Ronald Reagan uh, or Barack Obama back in 2008, but it, was, it got him where he needed to be. Well, do you think you think a majority of Americans would be willing to buy that vision of America now? I think that's the, a, a big question in this campaign. Maybe the biggest question in this campaign. We've had uh, more than one candidate running on a dark vision of America. Bernie Sanders was was pretty dark in his approach to America. Um, and we'll see. I, I wonder what the Democrats are going to do in Philadelphia next week. If they'll spend all their time talking about the negative side, that's that'll be harder for them to do because they've been in the White House for eight years. It's you know when you run for office, there, there's a, a strange danger in being too optimistic. And we always say people want to be optimistic. People want to vote for optimism. I think that's true, but they also want to know that you feel their pain, that you understand that there are problems to be solved. You don't want to tell them you've never had it so good. We need to get some balance to this message about where America is. We face significant threats. But, you know, you just look at the, the reality of it is uh, America has never been so dominant, for instance, right. in the emerging technologies of the day than we are right now well, with biotechnology and nanotechnology and artificial intelligence and all the things that are going to dominate the economy for the next 50 years, 100 years. Well, we you can, have, you can uh, Vin, hear all, all that technology on the Bloomberg Plus radio app, talking with uh, Vin Weber, who is uh, now a partner at Mercury Partners and a former member of Congress from Minnesota, where, as we know, everybody is nice. Um, this was not a nice convention. Uh, this was not a nice speech uh, by Donald Trump, who is not a nice nominee. In your old district, how would this play? Uh, are people as upset so that you know they don't mind insulting people and calling each other names? Um, or is this uh, going to be a tough sell? I don't think it plays well in my part of the country, to be honest about it. You know, in, the, in our caucuses in Minnesota, Mr. Trump finished third. Uh, Marco Rubio won, Ted Cruz finished second, and Trump finished third. And Minnesota was one of the states that petitioned for an opening of the rules this time to allow people to vote their conscience. I think, you know, across a lot of the 
Um, there's an argument that Trump has an appeal across the Midwest in places that we refer to, unfortunately, derogatorily as the Rust Belt, by angry people who have been displaced by manufacturing jobs. Okay, I, I get I get that there is a certain truth to that. There's also a certain civility to politics across the Midwest. We don't like people that engage in insult and denigration of their opponents. Uh, and I, I think that you know that it cuts both ways for him. I think he's going to have a very tough time in my part of the country. I don't think he can carry Minnesota. I don't think he can carry Wisconsin. But uh, you know, he's got appeal on in, in some ways too. Well, regardless of what happens, particularly with Donald Trump's campaign, the Republican Party in general will not look the same after this. Do you think that this will be the beginning of a split that will result in two different parties? Well, you've raised a very, very important and big issue, Lisa. I, I, I don't know if we actually split into two parties or not, but once we get past the arguments about Donald Trump's personality and the civility of his remarks and, and questions about you know racial denigration and all those things that matter, but that are quite unique to Donald Trump, uh, you're left with some big issue differences that he's brought into the Republican Party. We used to be the party of liberal trade, free trade. Now he's running on a more protectionist platform than the Democrats are likely to run on. Uh, we, we used to be the party of uh, liberal immigration policies, or at least sensible immigration policies. Now we're going to build walls and deport people. His approach to foreign policy, which was highlighted just this week in the interview that he gave to the New York Times, where he questioned whether or not we would actually honor our NATO commitments if the Russians moved, shall we say, in the Baltics. I mean, this is a, this 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 in the party that has prided itself, at least since McGovern's candidacy in '72, as being the party of strong international leadership. Those are all big issues, and they're not going to go away after this election. And and I can't. There's a big segment of the Republican Party that is not going to follow him or anybody else down that path of protectionism, nativism, and potentially isolationism. I understand that his people reject those labels, but I'm sorry. You know, I've been in these debates a long time. That's the, the, the kind of politics that they're practicing, and it's, and it's not what my Republican Party has always stood for. And there's got to be a party that stands for the things that we have stood for traditionally. I'd like it to become my party again, but if, if we're moving in a Trumpian direction, you could well see a challenge to the two-party system as it exists today. Uh, we, we had people mad as hell, and not going to take it anymore, in 1992, but uh, the Perot phenomenon flamed out. The contract with America, which you know well, uh, 1996, uh, the Republicans came to power. Everybody was uh, upset, throw the bums out, and, and that anger seems to have faded. So do we think that this may be just a Trump flash in the pan, or is there a real sea change coming? Uh, I, I think you cannot overstate the degree to which the personality of Donald Trump has contributed to this. There are real concerns in the country, and he's obviously touched a real chord with real voters. You can't deny that. But there's ways in which you can appeal to the voters and, and talk about their problems that are a lot less inflammatory and a lot less divisive. And we have a candidate here who has decided to ignore that and, and to throw away the rules of civility and to ignore the potential damage he's doing by dividing the country. 
if you remove him from the stage, I think there's a chance that you can deal with these issues rationally and seriously. I mean, most I think that he's sent a message, uh, the voters have sent a message to Republicans and Democrats alike that there are some problems that aren't being dealt with. But, you know, you don't need to re- resort to the kind of bigotry and demagoguery that we've seen in his campaign right. in order to appeal to those voters. You know, just real quick, in about 30 seconds, what's the alternative? You said this is not my Republican Party. This election, what's the alternative? Oh boy, you've asked a tough question. I, for, for, I, I'm going I'm I'm to duck, Lisa, and here's the way I duck, which is the way I think a lot of Republicans are going to duck. We've got great United States senators running for re-election. We've got really good members of Congress running for re-election. We've got Paul Ryan, who's put forward an agenda for Republicans, and I'm going to focus my effort yeah. on congressional Republicans. All right, a great duck, which shows I, why Vin Weber was a politician. <laughs> Thank you for joining us uh, this morning, Vin Weber from Mercury Partners. I feel like we should have this next discussion in a bar. I mean, it is 5 o'clock somewhere, right, Lisa? I I have to preface it by saying that when I, before I got married to my husband, he made me read Moneyball about sabermetrics to make sure that I agreed with a statistical view of baseball. I, and you do, because you're still happily married, right? <laughs> Correct. Um, and, I mean, but, I mean, um, this is a great book, Ahead of the Curve by, by Brian Kenny. Uh, he, uh, he, he's taken this to a whole new level here. It's not just, you know, using statistics, but how you could use statistics, things you could do. Uh, he works for Major League Baseball Network, so he obviously watches a whole lot of games. Just the fascinating suggest the one I want to talk to you about, Brian, that I want to start with is uh, the idea of what you call bullpenning. Uh, you learned this from the Cubans. You don't, you don't have starting pitchers. You just have pitchers, and you run them out there until the, you know they're ineffective, and you could go through a whole bunch of pitchers a game. I mean, this is why I say it's at a bar because this just this one topic alone we could spend hours on. The first thing that struck me is, you know, I, I root for the Mets who have a mediocre bullpen this year, and they're looking for help. Can you find enough pitchers uh, to to do that kind of thing who would be good enough for, you know, all of the major league teams? Oh, absolutely. I mean, no question. I mean, one, yeah, we can have this you know, discussion in a bar or a boardroom. Uh, I mean, this is all about asking questions like, why do we do the things the way we do? Why do we do it this way? And the answer to that, you probably know this through your own life, the answer most of the time is, well, because that's the way we've always done it. The reason we have starting pitchers is because that's what we did in the 19th century when only one guy would pitch the whole afternoon. And that was what, the reason why that was was because the early part of the game was really batter versus fielder. The pitcher was just there as a delivery system. He threw the ball. You could actually ask the pitcher to throw it in a certain spot, and you could hit it, and then you ran around the bases. It was a very exciting game. That's really where all of this comes from. We had one pitcher pitching all day. Now, we obviously don't do that now, but why do we still have the 19th century model of one guy going out there for six innings until he's exhausted or gives up a bunch of runs, and then we go save him? No, start from the very start, just throwing two innings a shot, maybe one inning a shot, like the way you see in an all-star game. And specifically, to answer your question, the average major league team now uses 23 pitchers per season. There's plenty of pitchers to absorb innings. If you just do the simple math, each pitcher could, and we're not going to give all those lesser pitchers the equal amount of innings, of course, but you could average about 90 innings a shot. 
You have, so now we have guys throwing 200 innings and guys throwing 60 innings. What's wrong with somewhere in the middle? That's a better usage of pitching and a much better strategy, and you will prevent many more runs. Is the argument here that uh, that pitchers will get hurt less, there'll be fewer injuries, uh, and they'll also that basically a really good pitcher, a better pitcher than another, after two innings is just as bad as the other one? Is that the idea? Well, it's, it's, it's really even simpler than that. I mean, you could definitely get more complicated. And, of course, you would try to tailor this to your personnel. I use a track analogy in that some people are very good marathoners. They're just built that way. And some people are good sprinters. They're built that way. In baseball, we have milers and sprinters. We don't use anybody for like a 400-meter anymore. We used to. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we had our relief pitchers going 120 innings, uh, some did 140 innings. That's a bit much to go full throttle. But the basic way to think about it is that you are faster when you sprint than when you jog. So why have someone saying, why have someone out there at all thinking, I'm going to pitch the whole afternoon? No, you're not. Blast. Put your foot down on the accelerator. Give us four outs, and you're out, and we give it to the next guy. Uh, we seem to be sort of moving in that direction, and Kansas City sort of pitches like that to a certain extent, and the Yankees now with the uh... – the three relief pitchers they have, I mean, you're, you're, they don't care if their starter doesn't go beyond five. Well, you see, that's a fascinating point. We are, we're moving inexorably toward it. But this is the history of baseball, and again, this transcends baseball. We're moving there, it's going there, it's going to get there. So my question is, why doesn't someone just do it? And the reason someone just doesn't do it is because that's not what the herd is doing. We have a herd mentality. We're strongly influenced by those around us, our culture. And, again, this is more than just baseball. You can you know, think about these things when you're talking to your next guest about business or anything else. You're talking to a CEO. The herd mentality is powerful. We only do what we think will be accepted by our peers, which to me is fascinating in baseball, or you could extend it to business, because you're competing. Right. You're competing with these people. Why are you playing ball with them? You, <laughs> shouldn't, you should be beating them. But to play devil's advocate, I mean, baseball goes to the heart of Americana and of culture. And, you know, part of the culture of baseball is the idea of a pitcher having a no-hitter or, you know, the celebrity pitcher that everyone just goes to a game uh, to watch uh, Matt Harvey at his peak. You know, all the classic pitchers. Doesn't your method take away from that magic? Yes. <laughs> In a word. I like that. Frank. I'm admitting it to you. It's not as fun. And I like to going to the ballpark and knowing, oh, it's going to be, you know, who, yeah, Matt Harvey versus, uh, you know, Madison Bumgarner. Hey, it's going to be, hey, Tim Lincecum is pitching today. That's exciting. Yeah, you do lose something like that. And I know people, uh, and I've talked to, you know, historians and, and people who really know baseball, and they say, yeah, you know, Brian, you're right, but I don't like it. <laughs> so, yes, you're right. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be fun? I'm just thinking about this, that you throw Aroldis Chapman in one inning followed by Stephen Wright. Uh, right. Know, the batters. Right, already, all, already you're thinking more than they are about it. You're <laughs> right. You change angles. You change. No, that's fascinating. You go for people who don't know. You go from a guy who's throwing 105 to a knuckleballer. You'd be screwed up for a while. And then you bring <laughs> in the next guy throwing sidearm. Of course, you're thinking we got to start a team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in the very beginning of your book, you had a line: "To adopt new methods is not just to stray from the pack, but to mock the herd itself." And of course, the reaction to being mocked isn't always that 
positive. What have what have some of the responses been that you've received? Um, well, um, well, I, people just agree basically, and I think as I go into, I mean, this is a baseball presents a fascinating study of human behavior, and I did extra reading on this. I have one chapter in there on. Uh, a guy who works for the Houston Astros, who was a uh, he worked for NASA before this, and he uh, has several doctorates and degrees in in human behavior. Uh, his name is Sig Madoll, and he's the director of decision sciences. Now, this he was a first of its kind in baseball, clearly, and it was done like whoa, right in your face. We have a director of decision sciences, and in baseball that was unheard of. But when you study why we make decisions, you realize how many blind spots we really have. And I think people that just stand back for a moment and just think about, hmm, how am I making decisions? Why do I make my decisions? And am I just afraid of what other people will think, or am I afraid of failure? Because, as I point out in the book, if you fail conventionally, you're fine. If you fail unconventionally, you're, you know, a smart aleck. You're trying to get by and on your wits, and you've made everybody else or you've tried to make everybody else look bad. And there are real repercussions for that. All right. Well, we're, we're, we, we don't have any more time, unfortunately, so we're going to have to have you back because the subject is so deep and so complex. And if we're going to start a team, I suppose Tom's going to want uh, some sort of uh, input into you know, who's, who's on the roster. Too many Red Sox for my taste, but, you know, Brian Kenny, thanks for joining us. The book is Ahead of the Curve, Inside the Baseball Revolution. And when he says revolution, Lisa, he means revolution. And maybe a lot of people aren't protesting him now, but certainly when Sabermetrics was beginning, uh, it inspired a lot of animosity across the baseball universe. All right. I'm waiting. I I still want Chapman followed by Wright. I think that would be the most hilarious thing anybody (laughs) could ever see. Thank you for being with us today and filling in for Tom. Thank you for having me. And uh, not talking a lot of math and understanding baseball and all the good things that uh, you brought to the show today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.